If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Today we're going to look at a familiar passage on the first Easter. And I must confess it's one of my favorite accounts of that first Easter. Have you ever heard a story that went in a different direction than you thought it would? That it ended differently than you expected? Perhaps a short story, a TV show, or a movie? Maybe a novel. Maybe it's the story of somebody's life. Maybe it's the story of your own life. Things didn't turn out the way you thought they would. That's how the people in Luke 24 felt. It's expressed in verse number 21, which we'll read later, but if you want to look at it now. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But as you see in the previous verse, in verse verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. The followers of Jesus had thought he was the one, that he was the Messiah. He was the one sent by God, chosen by God to redeem his people. Only a week earlier, the people had proclaimed him as he entered into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And now he's dead. This is something we should establish right off the bat. Jesus, in fact, did die. There are those who have suggested that he did not, that perhaps he fainted and was revived in the coldness of the tomb. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, has put it this way. The Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. They built an empire on it. Jesus, in fact, did die. By the way, if people say, no, he didn't, he just passed out, um, how did he get out of the tomb? And the picture of an exhausted and battered Jesus who had survived crucifixion I think would be unlikely to inspire confidence in his followers. Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead. But the story had not gone as people had expected. This is what we find in Luke 24. Surprised people, shocked people when they learn of the resurrection of Jesus. In the first eight verses, it is a surprise to the women who go there to anoint his body. It is a surprise to the eleven in verses 9, 10, and 11. And then in verse 12, Peter goes and he finds an empty tomb. It is a surprise to the two who are walking to Emmaus. That's what we will study in a few moments. And again to the 11 in verses 37 and 41 of chapter 24. I've mentioned this before, but I want to do it sort of as an introduction here. It is worth noting that women are the first to learn of the resurrection. Luke seems to go to great lengths to get us to see something, that women were a significant part of the Jesus movement especially in the events of the Passion Week, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you look at chapter 23, verse 49, we are told, all those who knew him, including women from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. That is, they were witnesses of his crucifixion and his death. And in verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. In verse 56, then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And then chapter 24, verse 1, on Easter morning, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. 
They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they entered. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And then in verses 4 through 7, two men in clothes that gleam like lightning said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Verse 8, Then they, that is the women, remembered his words. This points out to me that the women were not mere followers. They had listened to Jesus. They had been there through his ministry. And they remembered his words. And so they went and they told the 11 disciples what had happened. They were not believed because, after all, they were women. And Peter went to check it out for himself. We should not be surprised at the emphasis that Luke puts on women. It's, it's not his construction, if you wish, this really happened. But at the beginning of the story, the birth of Jesus, when Jesus is born, the angels announce his birth to shepherds. Shepherds were a class of people in Jewish society in the first, uh, first century who were not allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court. If you were a shepherd, you could not be a witness in a court because no one believed shepherds. If you were a woman, you could not give testimony in a court because, after all, you were a woman in the same category, in the same class as shepherds. So when Jesus is born, who are the first witnesses? Shepherds. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, who are the first witnesses? Who did God choose to be the first witnesses? They are women. But let's get back to the fact that the story had not gone as people expected. They are surprised, we will hear in this passage. Follow along, if you would, as I read from verses 13 to 32, here in Luke 24. Now that same day, this is Easter, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and, the prophet, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Simply put, the story had not gone as they had expected. This is made so clear in this story of these two people talking on the road to Emmaus, a village about seven miles from Jerusalem, we are told. As we read, as they're talking, a third man comes along, a third person joins the conversation. Let me just point out some things uh, about what's going on here. First of all, the nature of the conversation. This was definitely a theological discussion, profoundly so. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talk and discuss these things, Jesus himself came up, was walked along with them. They were kept from recognizing him. But three things to me are, are clear. First of all, it was a dialogue. Twice Luke tells us that they are talking to each other. It isn't one person telling another person. These two are talking to each other, a dialogue, not a monologue. Secondly, they were discussing everything that had happened. And from what we read, it's not merely the events that had happened, but the implications. We had thought, you know, they were convinced that he was the Messiah, but things had not turned out as they thought they would. And thirdly, this conversation, this dialogue involved great thought. The King James has, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, it's not a casual conversation. They're not just shooting the breeze about what had just happened. They're trying to make sense of it. It contradicted their hopes. It did not go the way they thought that it would. Calvin writes of this conversation, it was a proof of godliness that they endeavored to cherish their faith in Christ, though small and weak. They had thought he was the Christ, but things didn't turn out the way they thought. The second thing I would point out is the place of dialogue among God's people in Scripture. In Proverbs 27, 17, we read, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Dialogue is a means that God has provided of us sharpening each other and improving one another. We cannot understand or know things on our own. It takes another perspective, another point of view, somebody outside of ourselves, and as we dialogue, we begin to have a deeper understanding of what is true. In the New Testament, time and time again, we find the call for dialogue, the purpose of helping one another. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. In 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage each other with these words. The scriptures seem clear on this matter, that as God's people, we are to be in conversation and dialogue with each other. At this point in the worship, it may seem that that's counterintuitive because after all I'm doing all the talking, but it is the basis of a conversation that is to take place after I'm done. There is to be a dialogue that takes place. The third thing, the participants in this dialogue, if you look at verse number 13, it says two of them. Well, two of what? What comes to mind? Generally, we think that it's two of the 11 disciples. There were 12, but Judas committed uh, suicide, having betrayed the Lord Jesus. But we find that this is not possible because they go back to Jerusalem to the 11. So these are not two of the 11. 
Well, then people would say, well, at least two men. And in fact, most people refer to this as the men on the road to Emmaus. We do know that one was a man. His name is Cleopas. Um, I would suggest to you that the other person in the conversation was not a man, but was in fact a woman, his wife, Mary, who is mentioned in John chapter 19. You might say, does it make a difference if it's two men or a man and a woman? Well, I think it makes a profound difference as we will see as we go along. This leads to point number four. The nature of theological dialogues is not limited to men. That is to say, when we talk about doctrine or theology, we should not imagine that this is a male domain. That, in fact, this conversation must be between men because it is theological in nature. No. Women are to participate as well. And it is not merely to be a conversation among adults. Children are to be a part of this dialogue. They are not to learn only, but they are to contribute as well. In Genesis 22, we have the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac, his son. I'm sure they talked every day, but we only have one conversation recorded. When Isaac asked his father Abraham, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You see, children can ask questions and they are to be answered. They are to be a part of this dialogue. Abraham answered him, God himself will provide a sacrifice for the offering. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructs the Israelites, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. <clears throat> Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Here we have two people who are walking along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. We are not merely to speak to our children, but we are to be in dialogue with them. Particularly, I think, because it is children who are most likely to ask, why? Why do we do these things? In Exodus 12, regarding the Passover meal, when you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In Joshua 4, as Israel goes over the Jordan River, miraculously God opens up the river for them. Twelve stones are placed in the middle of the river. And Joshua tells the Israelites, in the future, when your children ask you, when or what do these stones mean? Tell them the flow of the Jordan was cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So theology or doctrine, the things of scripture are not merely for men. They're not merely for adults. They're for all of us and children are to be included in that discussion. The fifth thing I see in the story is the character of the people who are talking. They are eyewitnesses. They're not merely followers. They haven't simply looked it up in the news and heard about it. They actually were there. We are told in John 19, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary of Magdala. See, this serious theological dialogue is not some mere abstraction. Mary had been there. They're not merely speculating. She had been an eyewitness to these things. 
It involved their hopes, their faith, their life. Many theological discussions that I've been a part of or have been party to or listened to have in fact been a waste of time because when everything is said and done, more is said than done. It's more abstract. It's not real. It's not practical. The implications are not there. The idea of how does this affect my life doesn't seem to come up. But these two are engaged in a conversation. It's everything to them. It's life and death. It is their hopes, their faith, their understanding of the story. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And it is at this point that Jesus joins the conversation. They don't know it's him. They've been kept from recognizing him. And I am intrigued that he begins, as God does so often conversations, with a question. What are you discussing together as you walk along? And then, by the way, the second time he speaks, he asks another question. The fact that Jesus chose to converse and make himself known to them should be of great interest because, listen, that first Easter, there must have been many conversations. There must have been many people saying, what's going on? We had thought that Jesus was the one. And yet Jesus joins this particular conversation. He not only appeared to them, he explained to them that, in fact, they had gotten the story wrong. He begins with Moses, and he goes through all the Old Testament and explains to them why the Messiah had to suffer. And the other appearances we have on Easter Sunday, there are no such explanations. But on this first Easter, to these two people who are walking to Emmaus, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, explains precisely what had happened. And the seventh thing is the content of this explanation. This is a conversation I would have wanted to be a part of. What did Jesus say to them? I would suggest some guidelines for our thinking in this regard. First of all, we are told directly by Luke how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, the story was there. The information was there. They just had not seen it the way that they should. They were looking at it, I think, from a different angle, and therefore they thought it was going in a particular way, and it went differently than they had thought it would. Jesus tells them how the story was to be. So I don't think he told them anything new. I think they knew Moses and the prophets. What he did was say, listen, you've got the information. You're just not seeing it in the right light. And secondly, he told them what scripture says about the story of redemption. More about this in a minute. As we see, as they approach the village, they come near to Emmaus. Jesus acted as if he was going farther. He wasn't from Emmaus. He was going farther along the road. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It's time for supper, for dinner. Uh, the sun has gone down or is close to going down. And so they urged him to join them, to stay at their house for the night, to have a meal with them. 
And at the meal, several amazing things happen. Jesus, they still don't know it's him, who is the guest, takes on the role of host. He's a guest. You know, he's supposed to sit to the side. He's not the one who is to say grace. He is not the one who is to break bread. But in fact, he does four things. First of all, he takes the bread that is being offered. He gives thanks. He breaks it. And then he gives it to them. He's the guest. He's to be served. He's not the host, the one who is to serve. But wait a minute. Does this all sound familiar? This is what we read of Jesus doing at the Last Supper, where he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and then he gives it to them. Before we go on, let me do uh, an aside here. And I want you to think about the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and how it was written. It points to the story going in a different direction, that which the disciples had not anticipated. But what we find are parallels between the beginning of the book of Luke and the end. In a sense, Luke comes full circle in writing the story. The book opens with Zechariah being told by an angel that his son John would be born. Like the 11 in chapter 24, he does not believe what he is told. God does not require their belief to accomplish what he intends. The angels announce the birth of Jesus to shepherds. Angels announce the resurrection to women. Simon tells Mary in chapter 2, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, the fall and resurrection of many in Israel. He would carry the destiny of Israel. What Israel did not do, Jesus would do in himself. Anna, when he was taken to the temple, gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And Cleopas and Mary told Jesus we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I think one of the more striking parallels are what we find between the story of Jesus when he was 12 years old and this story of the two people on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember the story? Jesus goes to the temple with his parents. It's Passover. Every good Jew goes to Jerusalem for Passover. And now they go back to Nazareth. But after a day, they, re they realize, Joseph and Mary realize, Jesus isn't with them. And so they go back. And what we find in the story is, in both stories, it is a time of Passover. We have a visit to Jerusalem. We have a couple, two couples, actually traveling away from Jerusalem, searching for Jesus and finding them. And Jesus, when he is 12, says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And the resurrected Jesus said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things? In both passages, there is the necessity. These things had to happen. The significance of Easter for Luke is that it completed the things that had to take place. There's one more thing, and this for me, um, I think is perhaps why it is my favorite passage with regard to Easter. Because in a real sense, we come full circle. It is in the context of a meal, of eating, that a man and his wife's eyes are opened. Does that sound familiar to you at all? A man and a woman, a husband and a wife, eating, and their eyes being opened. 
The first meal that is mentioned in the Bible is that of Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit. And the direct, direct result was new and unwelcomed knowledge. They saw that they were naked, they were ashamed, and they hid from God. Then God comes and he says, where are you? Who told you that we're na- you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Here Jesus enters the conversation with the question, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And in the context of a meal, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And then their eyes are open, and they recognize that it is Jesus. And this is new knowledge. This is deeply welcome knowledge. It is the opposite. It is the undoing of what Adam and Eve had done centuries before. What Luke is telling us is the long exile of the human race is over. Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden because of sin. We have been exiled from the presence of God. But now because of Jesus, the Messiah, the exile is over. It is the beginning of new creation. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Resurrection happened on the first day of a new week. It is a new week, a new beginning. And listen to what, if you'll follow along, what Luke writes in verses 45 through 47. It matches what Simeon had said in chapter 2. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance will be, and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. It isn't just the Jews who are in exile. We as Creatures made in God's image because of sin have been exiled from the presence of God. Adam and Eve ate and their eyes were opened. And now Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, gives to Cleopas and Mary bread and their eyes are open and they see the truth of it, that he is the resurrected Christ. It's no wonder that after he disappeared, Cleopas and Mary asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? He showed them that their version of the story was wrong. They had the information, but they saw him coming in as a military conqueror, someone who would deliver them in a military or political way, and instead they now see the truth of it because he had opened scripture to them. If you ever been in a conversation with someone, and the other person is talking, but in your mind you're finishing what they're saying. You imagine what you think you know where the conversation is going, so you're preparing your response. Sometimes you're wrong. And here in Luke 24, we find that the people of God, for all their faith in Christ, were wrong. They didn't get it, that Jesus had to die and then to be raised from the dead. They didn't get that he had to pass through death and come out the other side to bring us out of exile. They didn't get that it is through breaking bread that their eyes would be open. 
And so of all the conversations that Jesus could have been a part of that first Easter, he chose to be a part of a conversation between a husband and his wife, Cleopas and Mary. And it is at a meal, in the context of a meal, that he finally lets them get to see it's him. Up to this point, they don't know that it's him. They are amazed at what he has to say, but they don't realize that it's Jesus. And then their eyes are open, and they see the truth of it. Some years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians, He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As Jesus asked Cleopas and Mary, they still didn't know it was him, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The answer is yes. And they didn't get it at first. But in the undoing of what Adam and Eve had done when they ate, now at a second meal, their eyes are opened and we see that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story, this husband and wife, that first Easter, engaged in deep theological dialogue, and not merely for the sake of discussing abstractions, but because it was life and death for them. And of all the conversations Jesus could have joined, he joined theirs and open the scriptures to them. And then in the context of a meal, he opened their eyes and they saw that it was him. So often for us, the truth of Easter, the truth of the gospel is merely theology. It's abstract. It's not real. And oftentimes, even in our conversations, they're more abstractions than they are truly significant. I thank you that by your grace and in your wisdom, that which was done by Adam and Eve in eating what they should not have is undone by the coming of Jesus. And with another husband and wife, centuries after Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened to see deep, profoundly welcome news that Jesus is Lord. Where Adam and Eve came to see their sinfulness, Cleopas and Mary come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. On this Easter Sunday, we give thanks for the coming of your Son,
who suffered unimaginable things, passed through death and came through to life, that we might have life. And he points ahead to the new creation of which we will be a part. By your spirit, by your grace, may we come to see the truth of this. And not merely as theology, but as life itself. I thank you for bringing us together on this Easter Sunday. May we, like Cleopas and Mary, be filled with joy at the news of the resurrected Jesus. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.